she's always been the type of person that just says things and she just speaks her mind. I guess that has a little bit to do with not having a formal education. everybody, welcome to episode 62 of The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. And we're coming to you with part two of our year-end wrap-up series. The first one, which we released last week, covered January through the French Open. And at that time, Novak had just completed his career slam, winning four majors in a row as well, looked unstoppable, and Garbina Muguruza had just galloped to the French Open title mm-hmm. as well. Serena had just lost her second straight major final, so uh, we weren't really sure where she was at. And so there were a lot of storylines percolating, and some of them just fizzled for the rest of the year. Well, that's it, right? The stories of the first half didn't really carry through the rest of the way. Right. As I was preparing for this episode, I'm taking on the WTA this time. And I was trying to think of some themes of the second half of the WTA year. And it's it's really tough. I mean, one of the themes is the almost total absence of Serena Williams after Wimbledon, unfortunately. Another theme that's a little more hopeful is uh, Sibulkova and Kuznetsova kind of sticking around. These two veterans finding ways to win, continuing their very good year. And they tend to be very streaky players. So I think... Sibulkova more so than Sveto for the rest of the right. year. Dominica really just put her foot on the gas pedal and just ran mm-hmm. a whole bunch of red lights to the end of the year, right? <laughs> yeah, winning things she wasn't supposed to win. So get us started on the second half with the WT. I guess that will be in June post Roland Garros. Yes. So in the biggest news of June, probably outshone a lot of tennis news was that Maria Sharapova was sentenced to two years in tennis prison by the ITF. Now, a lot of people thought this was draconian. We weren't so bothered by it. No. (laughs) We always felt that there should have been a suspension. It was just a matter of how long. I assumed it would be two years. I think most people assumed it would have been two years at that point. Maybe 18 months. And if anything came in shorter than that, then it was like, well... There's that privilege of mm-hmm. play. Right. You know, she's getting some kind of special treatment. French Open champion Muguruza traveled to Mallorca to play the first year of this grass tournament. Can and I just stop you there? Mm-hmm. You are insistent on not saying Muguruza. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, that's fine. If that's your choice, that's your <laughs> choice. But why, given or dedication to correct pronunciation... As stated by you as well, Mm -hmm. with, you know, what is it, Katowice from last week. (laughs) Do you say Muguruza and I say right next to you Muguruza? Maybe it's just low-key shade or maybe it's just ignorance on my part. No, I think you're you're doing it out of spite. Do you think I should call her... You're showing your true colors. I should just call her Gabine, like (laughs) Serena does. Just call her Gabby. (laughs) I don't like that either. So... Muguruza 
lost in uh, Mallorca in the first year of this tournament to Kirsten Flipkins, who, as we know, is a more than one-time offender against Venus Williams as well. Mm -hmm. She will offend again very soon on this podcast. (laughs) Right. So she does have a pedigree of being a giant killer, but it is notable that Muguruza's year was very, very different following the French Open compared to the first part of her year. And in the time of the year where she really shined last year, which was the fall swing, she was mostly absent. That's not to say that her first half of the season was great. She won the French Open, but if you take away those seven wins, what is it? You're looking at, she was, what, 22-9 and before the French Open? Okay. Including the French Open. So before the French Open, she would have been 15-9, and which is nothing special. Mm. That's very quick math. So we see the beginning of this. We didn't know at the time that it was a slide, but it was just a, a disappointing second half of the year for Mugurutha. But other places in grass, we saw other players kind of on the come up. Plishkova wins Nottingham for her fifth career title. And little did we know that was a sign of things to come. Well, it really was little did we know because she'd done well on these lead-up grass events before. Right. What was it, the second time she'd won, uh, what was it, Nottingham? Yes. And she has, I mean, that serve alone. If she had nothing else, that serve alone would win her matches on grass. Madison Keys won Birmingham, also on grass, gets her into the top 10. She now has two WTA titles, and her first title was in Eastbourne. So she is a grass court contender, really, every time that season rolls around. We spoke in part one of, at least I thought, when Bencic made the top 10 for the first time, that it felt permanent. Keys making the top 10 felt (laughs) more permanent. Right. Because when you compare the two, their talent sets are widely disparate. (laughs) I mean, they they each do different things well in their own right, but Mm -hmm. Madison Keys just has that wow one-of-a-kind type of aesthetic to her game. That's true. And in this era of women's tennis, Bencic's game will make it more difficult for her to stay at the top. Whereas Keyes' power, as long as it stays accurate, will win her matches. Also, Coco Vandeweghe won the Rico Open in that Dutch city that I cannot pronounce. The one with, like, uh, apostrophe S. Yes. Kurtzbarschkenbach <laughs> or something like that. I'm not going to try. If we have any Dutch listeners, please give us a little help here. Uh, and Coco also got to the semifinal in Birmingham, which did make her Wimbledon performance a little bit of a disappointment for her, but we will get to that. She was defending quarterfinal points to at Wimbledon, I She believe. was. And uh, Tamarine Tanisugarn, is that how you say her name? Yeah. She is Thai. And she retired at age 39, which is a ripe young age in women's tennis these days. To retire from your first career. Right. On the tour. <laughs> because who knows, maybe she'll be back. But it's uh, uh, important to give her a shout out because she is the winner of four WTA titles. She's been ranked as high as number 19. And that was at a time when there were a precious few Asian players on tour. Especially Southeast Asia. And she also scored a bunch of number one wins in her career over Yankovic and Safina and a couple others. None mm. of the really, truly big names of the Williamses, right. for example. But she's somebody who could, at any given time, have a big win here or there. And she played extensively in doubles. 
and was a name. It's an unusual name. And I mean, I'm from Jamaica, so I always thought Tamron Balls. Oh, when, yes. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw her name. Uh, but it's her career has spanned the entirety of my tennis life because I, my first match that I watched was in 1994 and that's when she turned pro. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like yet another chapter closed in my formative tennis years. Now, Jonathan, why don't you tell us what was going on with the men in June? <laughs> Do you like that segue? Because I gave him distinct and strict instructions not to segue with saying, so what happened so-and-so? <laughs> because as we've talked about in the past, we always seem to have various verbal tics that we have to deal with. <laughs> and we seem to have conquered you know. Well, You've done so much remedial work on you know. Remedial? I'm so proud of you. I have never been in remedial in my <laughs> life, okay? But as the moment you get rid of one, another one comes up or becomes more prominent. Mm -hmm. And so, so is your your biggest, you know. Okay, fine. No, fine. I just said you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> See? June post-French Open, Dominic team right away wins his fourth title of the year in Stuttgart. And at the time, team had won the most matches on tour up to that point. <laughs> really? Yeah. Before Stuttgart, his record was 43 and 11. And then after Stuttgart, his record was 15 and 13. So that gives you some insight into the way the rest of his year mm -hmm. derailed. Okay, this boy played 54 matches. Mm-hmm. Up until June. That's ridiculous. Overall, his record in the year was 58 and 24. And it's one of those topics that we have beaten to death and are so sick of talking about. So maybe this is the last time for the year. <laughs> Dominic team scheduling and playing too much. And the, the negative effects that that had on his body and his results in the second half of the year. But the numbers don't lie. He had a fabulous February through June. One... Almost everything he entered went deep in almost anything he entered. <laughs> my eyes are bulging out of my head right now. <laughs> you are so filthy. I, I didn't say it. I didn't even think anything of it. I mean. You gave me that look and I'm just like, what did I just say? And I thought about <laughs> it and I'm like, oh, okay. Some might say it's a Freudian slip. Mm -hmm. But I, I, just, I just don't know why you got to be like that. I didn't say anything. Nadal announced his withdrawal from Wimbledon, which came as no surprise to anybody. No. I don't know if we mentioned on the previous episode that Murray and Moresmo had split. We did. Okay. So, at this time, mid-June, Murray and Lendl announced that they're getting back together. And this is just in time for another run at Wimbledon. Murray goes on to defend his London title, his fifth overall at that event. And I have written here, start of climb to number one, question mark. It was a long-ass climb. And if number one were the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, there was a whole lot of London fog obscuring the view at that point. Oh, I see what you did there. Mm -hmm. Number 192 in the world, Florian Mayer. He wins the second title of his career. However, it's his first since 2011. And he'd been on and off the tour for the better part of two years because of injury. So this kind of came out of nowhere in Hala. 
We talked about Murray winning that London final. Guess who he beat in that London final? I think I know. Yeah, because... Rayonich. <laughs> you, you, um, you made a note on the previous episode, which I then talked about on air, that Rayonich lost six times to Murray this year. And it didn't really sink in as something notable until I was doing more research. Because the majority of those losses come post-French Open. Right. In pretty big matches and, and big scenarios. And it was just... Exactly. Oh my God. Again? At the very prestigious Queen's Club in London. And then at Wimbledon. So to me, if Raonic is looking back at his year, he may remember it as the year I got so close and kept losing to Andy Murray. Maybe he would have been number one at the end of the year had, had he not lost to Andy Murray. <laughs> Can somebody do the math? The calendar turns to July and we start with Wimbledon. On the men's side, Andy Murray wins the third slam of his career and second at Wimbledon, which came as a surprise because Djokovic was the odds-on favorite, granted. But once Djokovic lost in the third round to Sam Querrey, it was just handed to him on a silver platter, pretty much. Unless Federer was able to summon something of yore. Coming into the tournament off very little match play because right. of injury. Right. He was really the only obstacle in his way. Because other than Federer, you really had to go pretty far down the rankings to see major contenders. Wawrinka is a threat almost anywhere, but Wimbledon is clearly his weakest major. And really, was it going to be Query? Getting a maiden and will be his only slam title, <laughs> making the most of beating Djokovic, which is a fabulous achievement, beating Djokovic in a yes. Grand Slam. Wonderful. But then to be able to then parlay that into winning the whole thing would have been just... That might have been the craziest story of them all in 2016. In history? I mean... Said that Sam Querrey beating Djokovic was one of the most shocking things I've seen in recent history, but tennis history, that is. But I don't think he had any designs on winning the tournament. No, he had and designs. I, it just well, wasn't happening. Of course, he anyone wants to, but I, I think... I think you're being a bit narrow-minded when it when you say one of the biggest upsets in history, because we no, saw... the most, most shocking... Just to you. To me, in the past few years, okay. I would say. Well, Kevin Anderson, who is a similar type player, big serve, tall, almost took him out, what was it, the year before or two right. years ago? Right. So grass is a surface where this kind of result can't happen. That's true. Raonic makes his first ever slam final after beating Federer in five sets in the semifinal, but he loses again to Mari. This time in straight sets, 6-4, 7-6, Tomas Berdik. He recovers from that double bagel loss that we talked about as one of my most shocking moments of 2016 to Goffin. And very shortly after that, he makes the semifinal, which was a, a pretty good result for him. That was a very good result because I felt he regardless, came out Yeah, but regardless of whether he was in good form or not, let alone coming off a double bagel, a semifinal mm -hmm. at Wimbledon. We know he's a finalist there in the past, but still, that's that's pretty good for him. He beat uh, Nadal Slayer Luca Pui in the quarterfinals to get to that semifinal. Federer beats Cilic in the quarterfinals. This after coming back from a two-sets-to-love deficit. And little did Cilic know that that was going to be a big cloud hanging over his season. That is, being up two-sets-to-love and then not being able to close. 
You play so few five-set matches to begin with in the span of a year, and somehow Chilich managed to lose three of them while leading two sets to love in 2016. Yeah. This match against Federer, and then his very next match, which happened in Davis Cup. And then again to close the year out against Del Potro. So he had a, a fairly good second half of the year at Chilich, but that's something that, that might stick with him for a while and may have deleterious effects on his oh, psyche going forward in these big matches that, that span five sets. I think that dispels the myth that once you've won a major, you have sort of... I, I always used to think that if you could win a major, you've conquered a lot of mental demons, you know, that you can achieve a lot more because you've, you've achieved that. But, I mean, major winners continue to struggle with those things. The final bit I want to add about Wimbledon on the men's side is Marcus Willis. How the All England Club plucked him from the fat farm to become oh the story of 2016 in Britain. Up until Murray's rise to number one. What that, that was, you know you thought that. The fat farm? No, I was defending him. I said he doesn't look that different from your favorite Jack Sock. Oh my we God. already talked about that. No, but, Jack Sock's no longer my favorite. Uh, so don't be spreading mistruths and lies. And slanderation. The British press does the most. I mean, they invented this. And man, they can hype someone like crazy. I was never interested in the Marcus Willis story. It's so, just, it's not an issue to me. Like, I know that people living in Britain are really, really sick of hearing about him. I don't really care either way. Like, I'm not mad about it, but I'm also just not interested. The U.S. press goes crazy with big-time stories for young American players at the U.S. Open. So it's not to be here saying, well, the British press does the most. The U.S. press does a lot well, as but, well. But in the U.S., nobody cares. So tennis stories don't That's go true. they don't go mainstream unless you're Serena Williams. And you're not gonna be hearing about his what dental hygienist girlfriend fiance right. on the front page as well, right? From what I understand, there have been a lot of personal interest stories in major papers or major tabloids at least. Fair point. So like Wimbledon News goes mainstream in Britain. On the women's side. Well, at the beginning of this tournament, it's easy to forget that five women could have reached number one at the conclusion of Wimbledon. For me, Wimbledon was really the the peak of tennis watching this summer. Because, I wonder why. Well, I mean, we we did a podcast about this. Like, all of our tennis dreams, or many of them, came true at this tournament. So we were able to see... Or Venus almost and, came true. Almost. Venus and Serena win another doubles title together, which is my vote for my number one moment of the year in tennis. Serena wins the title, Venus makes the semifinal, and by doing that, she becomes the oldest woman since 1994, and you know who that was, to reach the semifinal. Martina Hingis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a, the other Martina. Oh, the Martina she was named the after. The original okay, Martina. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... So Venus had a great tournament. She lost to Kerber 6-4, 6-4 in the semifinals, which was disappointing for us. Hugely disappointing. But based on the year that Kerber had, not 
anything to be ashamed of. And we know Kerber's been a bugaboo for Venus in the past. She has. Which is why I was slow to take to Kerber and her success this year. Because I have a long memory. And this is kind of peak Kerber. Mm -hmm. Really, the story of the women's or the ladies' tournament at Wimbledon is Serena. As we know, she can rebound at Wimbledon. She sort of gets... The spirit just infuses her at Wimbledon, even though she says she doesn't really like grass that much. Her seven Wimbledon titles beg to differ, of course. It's easier on her body, especially at this stage of her career, to get through seven matches in quicker time than, say, slogging it out on clay courts. That's definitely true. So I was just watching some highlights of the women's final between Serena and Kerber, And I was reminded of how many long rallies there were, how many really high quality rallies. And when Serena came to the net, she was a lot smarter about it this time. Because at Australia, how many times was she passed? We didn't talk about that on the previous podcast. She was passed cross court from Kerber's forehand. Mm -hmm. And this time, most of the times when she came to the net, she had a purpose. Like she knew what she wanted to do with the point. I see people say all the time, don't we? Don't you know by now that you can't approach to, to Kerber's forehand? And while that may be true, Serena's approaches in Australia were some of the worst you'll ever see in life. <laughs> like it's a kind of, oh, Patrick said I should come tonight. Oh, let me try this. Right. Or let me just keep doing it until I'm Serena Williams. I'm going to make it work. And it just didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kerber is very, very dangerous mm-hmm. when she's passing. But there, there are ways to play a kind of a modified serve and volley against her that work. You're going to get passed a lot. Like, you're still going to get passed. But it's kind of about picking your spots. That was one of the low-key big stories of the first half of the year. How poor Serena approached the net. Because that went on for a while. <laughs> right. One, Really, one of the most accomplished doubles players in history. She has shown Im- really impeccable volleying skills before, but that was not it. The rest of the women's tournament, we had some huge exits in the second round. Kvitova, Muguruza, Pliskova, Bencic, all out in the second. Kvitova, as you know, a two-time champion. Sibokova played a crazy epic match against Radwanska in the quarter f- or in the f- round of 16, 9-7. And as I mentioned, this was kind of the start of the rankings watch. You know, the watch, the vigil over Serena's number one ranking. Which extended through pretty much the entire summer until Kerber lopped her head off (laughs) at the U.S. Open. Right. So we're still in July, and Ivo Karlovich becomes the oldest ATP titleist since 1979. This is moving past Wimbledon right now. He's 37 years old. He wins Newport, which is where the Hall of Fame is held, right, the induction ceremony. Mm -hmm. And in that induction ceremony, the three people that are anointed by the tennis gods are Justine Enna, Emily Moresmo, and Marat Safin. That's an interesting group. An accomplished group. Yeah. <laughs> we have the, the Hand of God, the trailblazer of women's tennis in the last 15 years, one of them. And then we have the rogue, petulant, Putin-loving... <laughs> Vladimir Safin. One-time hot boy, Marat Safin. Also brother of Dinara Safina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right about this time, we start to see a spate 
of withdrawals from the Olympics. Leading up to 2016, there was a lot of chatter of, apart from Kitty Chiller chitter chatter, <laughs> there was a lot of tennis chatter about how the Olympics disrupts the tennis schedule. And so we had a lot of people, I thought, disguising they're just not wanting to travel all the way to Rio and then have to go back stateside to Cincinnati. Yes. With a whole host of reasons why they weren't going to Rio. Among the earliest withdrawals were, or I should say withdrawers, were Simona Halep, Milos Raonic, which essentially killed Canada's hopes for a gold medal, Tomasz Berdyk, and Karolina Pliskova. And Team and Kyrgios had already committed mm -hmm. to other tournaments way before that. I think Team went to Mexico and then... Yes. And uh, Kyrgios went to Atlanta, right? Uh, I believe I that remember. that's the case. Gael Mofis wins DC, which improves his horrendous record in ATP finals to 6-19. and 19. Prior to, Imagine this. Prior to this, he had played 24 ATP finals and only won five of them. Mm -hmm. Is that bad? It's... <laughs> give him a slight pass in that you're playing in an unprecedented era. But he wasn't playing Grand Slam finals. No, he... Nor was he playing Masters 1000 finals. So that was really bad. It was. In that final in DC, Karlovich held match point against Mofis, which would have then given him two titles in back-to-back -back weeks. So... Eve, Dr. Evo, as Brad Gilbert likes to call him, he was straight balling <laughs> right after Wimbledon. Give us a little bit of a rundown briefly of what happened on the WTA leading into the Rogers Cup. Yeah, there were a lot of extracurricular activities, shall I say. So Victoria Azarenka announced her pregnancy to the shock of nearly everyone. Patty Schneider played her first WTA match since 2011 in a three-set loss to Siniakova. Siniakova? <laughs> Help me here. I say Siniakova. Okay. A bunch of people got married. Ivanovich married a very famous footballer, <laughs> Schweinsteiger. Sibulkova married her hot husband, Parangova. Panetta married someone, I think he's a tennis player too. Taylor Fritz decided he wanted to have sex immediately and got married. <laughs> Oh my god, right? That has to be it. In tennis news, Simona Halep wins in Bucharest at home. Venus gets to a final and Stanford loses to Kanta. Would have been her 50th title, but she got stuck at 49. I was so ready for that number 50. So ready. Mm -hmm. Janina Wickmeyer came out of nowhere to win both doubles and singles in Washington, D.C. Sibulkova is in the top 10. After reaching the semifinals in Stanford, lost to the champion Kanta, and Nicole Vitasova retired again, stopped her comeback trail. Mm -hmm. Now that was one of the the low key fun moments for me in 2016. It was. I was actually Watching, disappointed um, that I she... remember when she first came back. It was some event challenger in Arizona, maybe I want to say, and it was. Her matches were live streamed. Oh. And it looked so deliciously budget. And it was it was a, a an insight into a level of tennis that you don't get through your computer. Mm -hmm. And this player who has a standing in the game and a history and a what if 
hovering over her head that you wondered, well, maybe she'll be able to script something more pleasant in this second career. And right. that it, was that. It must be hard for a player to play on the biggest stages and then have to go back down to ITF and Challengers where people don't even shag balls for you. So that brings us to the big lead-up tournaments to the U.S. Open. Our home event. Right. We have a hometown event. The Rogers Cup and Cincinnati were really decimated by the Olympics. The Olympics really messed with tennis's normal schedule over the summer. Rogers Cup was More a little so bit Toronto. Earlier. Yes, definitely. Rogers Cup was a bit earlier uh, in July because of the Olympics. The women were in Montreal this year. Simona Halep won, beat Madison Keys in the final, another final for Madison. I should mention that she also reached the round of 16 at every major this year. So four is a big number for her this year. And in our part three wrap-up episode, we're going to be talking about my Grand Slam rankings because I've created these really simple and budget Grand Slam rankings for the (laughs) WTA. And one of the big takeaways from those rankings is how high Madison Keys is. Because she's one of a handful of players, literally a handful of players, who have made at least the fourth round of every major in the last two years. She's just been one of the most consistent Mm -hmm. players in tennis. Not necessarily making finals and and semis every week, but just not losing early. Right. Kudos to her. Tell us who who Halep beat on her way to the final, because that was pretty impressive. Well, she beat a murderer's row here. Gavrilova, Pliskova, Kuznetsova, Kerber, and then Keys. I mean... That's some serious hardcore prowess, which is <laughs> clearly her best surface. Right. And up until this point, she had done very little on tour in 2016. I think it was, did you say it was her second title? Yes. And her, the 13th of her career. But, or no, sorry, the, the 14th. The thing is, though, she beat all of these Grand Slam champions and finalists. Pliskova won Cincinnati and then got to the U.S. Open final had huge wins. Sveta and Kerber are Grand Slam champions. It just seems like Halep can beat these players, but not always on the biggest stages. On the men's side, Noli wins his fourth Rogers Cup, which is his 30th Masters title. And at this point, he's 51-4 and four on the year and has seven titles. Which is crazy, crazy good. But this is where it ends. <laughs> it does. And there wasn't really much of an inkling that things would take a turn. He shows up to a depleted field in Toronto, wins that, and you don't really think, well, he won it because of a depleted field. But, oh, I don't know, at this point, looking back, nothing else really went well for him after that. Right. Nishikori makes his third Masters 1000 final of his career and second of the year, repeating the loss he had to Djokovic in Miami. I don't think we've talked about how consistent Mofis has been at this point. Up until the Rogers Cup, he had been one of the more consistent players on tour all year. Hadn't really done much winning in terms of tournaments. He'd won the one event and made another final. But he was consistently making quarterfinals. And he does so again in Toronto. He makes the semifinals. And that leaves him at number 11 at week's end. One of my favorite stories of the year, Denis Shapovalov, bursts onto the tennis scene in Toronto with a first-round win over Nick Kyrgios. And I remember being on site and hearing all these different... I mean, I wasn't impressed that week, so I don't... I don't get that insider info. I'm just listening to what fans are saying around the grounds. And there was a lot of talk 
about where's Kyrgios, where's Kyrgios. He's playing tomorrow and he's not in Toronto yet. All mm-hmm. these players show up typically by Saturday in Toronto. And so that first weekend where there's qualifying, most of the top players are already on site, practicing all over the grounds. And Kyrgios didn't show up until sometime, I want to say Sunday night or Monday in the day for his Monday night match. And from watching Shapovalov practice, and a lot of those practices were with Felix Auger Alessim, he was very impressive. And I remember speaking to, shout out to Nancy, who I met. She's a body surf listener on site. She had said to me, you know, I I really wouldn't be surprised if, if Dennis wins this match because Kyrgios just doesn't, doesn't seem to be taking this seriously right now. And that's what happened. Okay, come through, Nancy. <laughs> And I really hope that Dennis does really big things in the future. He's like a 2016 Martina Navratilova, but a young boy. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I... I'm not really sure what that means. That's what I think of him. The last bit of news from the Rogers Cup is I'm way up high on center court watching Mofis. I think I'd seen Mofis maybe play four matches that week. <laughs> More than I'd, mm-hmm. I've seen anybody play in one tournament. And I was like, well, let me... Just quickly check up on Twitter, see if I have any notifications. And on my home screen, on my mobile app, I'm just seeing Federer everywhere. I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? News broke very early that week in Toronto that Federer was done for the year, which was just shocking news. Like, the dude had just come off a semifinal at Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, he was injured, but you didn't think it was something that was going to be long-term. And then you hear that, well, it's he's not going to have another surgery. He's just going to rehab and just take the time off. And like, well, color me surprised. Yeah. And with with most of the most shocking events in tennis in 2016, I can recall exactly where I was when they happened. Like when that... Really? Yes. When that Sharapova press conference happened, I was at Square One Mall in Mississauga. I don't know what I was doing there, but I was there in March and I knew that the press conference was happening. And I sat my ass down in one of those quiet benches next to some really old person who was taking a break from their walking of the mall, (laughs) doing some scratch-off tickets. And I had my, I came prepared with my headphones and I listened to the press conference like, what the fuck, Mm. right? I was on the subway coming home from school, actually. And thank you to our carrier, they have service in the subway stations. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, which is about the only good thing we have with our carrier, because it's, it's shit. But then I'm able to tell you where exactly I was with Federer, right? So I want the listeners to tell us where exactly were you when any of these really major news stories broke? Be it the Sharapova story, where were you when you learned that Federer was done for the year? These things that you can, that you will for sure remember 10 years from now Mm -hmm. as being emblematic of the shit show of 2016. The Kennedy assassination, where were you? (laughs) Let's hope you were not on that grassy knoll holding a rifle. (laughs) I think that brings us to the Olympics. This tennis within a tennis season. Yes. The Olympics in the past have always been a little bit crazy for tennis. It's really not like a normal tournament. We've had a a lot of shocking medalists in Olympics history. One one time. Masu Fish is a medalist. Uh, Gonzalez... Just a lot of really surprising results in Olympic tennis. We get to Rio as well, and then we learn that you come from Toronto and all these other hard court events, and we get slow-as-fuck courts, 
So not only do you travel all the way halfway across the globe to Rio, you now have to play on the sight unseen courts and adjust. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like you're back on clay, but without the prestige. I had really high hopes going to this tournament that Serena and Venus would get another gold in doubles, mm-hmm. but I, the court has a lot to do with it, and Venus was not feeling well. She was sick. It was just really bad timing for that. And she said that she really wanted to get matches in in the U.S. Open Series, and the schedule was just really crazy this summer. But it was a shame because the Olympics are obviously very, very important to her. So I was, honestly, when Serena Venus lost in doubles, I was pretty tuned out of the Olympics. Even the women's singles? Um, Did you just assume yeah. that Serena was Well, because win? it didn't take very long for Serena to lose to Svitolina after that. So after, honestly, after that, I really had, since I do a tennis podcast, I have to care. But it was really, really hard getting motivated to care. I feel care. like that's your mantra for a lot of the tennis season. <laughs> Since I have a tennis podcast, I have to care. Maybe if I were being paid to care, it would be easier. But also, right off the bat, we learn that you can't expect anything to go according to plan at this tournament. Because everybody's losing. Yeah. Why don't we start with the uh, number one biggest upset of the tournament? There's Del Potro taking out Djokovic in the first round. Which just sucks, quite frankly, for Djokovic. You draw Del Potro in the first round on this slow-ass court. And we go... We subsequently find out that Del Potro, fresh off not playing much tennis for two years, is ready to fuck up everybody's life. (laughs) As long as there's not ranking points available that's the thing and that's something you're going to be seeing for the rest of the year well he had beaten stan at wimbledon as well that was his first really big win and then he comes and he beats novak right off the bat they have this emotional embrace at net djokovic is in tears presumably because it means a lot to him to represent serbia and he the presumptive gold medal favorite loses right right away yes that must have been crushing for him and it also got me thinking in retrospect now, how different the rest of his year could have been had he not lost that match. If Djokovic is your Olympic gold medalist, if he goes through that draw, beats Murray in the final again, maybe things look different for him. We talked about how the margins are so small in the first part of this wrap-up series with respect to Kerber in Australia and how her saving match points in that very first match was perhaps a big catalyst toward her having a career-changing year. And maybe it might not be a career-changing event for Djokovic. He may rebound and be the Djokovic we know him to be. Mm. But at least in 2016, perhaps you can point to this as something that was, uh, say you draw number 50 in the world and just wallop them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, And you're able to acclimatize to the surface and get match play as the week goes on, maybe things look totally different for him. I agree. And it's easy to see the year as kind of Murray's ascendancy now that the year is over. But again, had things fallen slightly differently in a single match, we could be looking at a very, very different year. And Delpo then takes that first round win against Djokovic, goes on to beat Nadal, in the semifinals, and then plays a four-hour four-set match against Murray in the final. Not only is he is he scoring these upsets, these one-off upsets, but he's playing the would-be year-end number one mm-hmm. 
in Rio and again throughout the rest of the year really well in ways that other players aren't able to play him. And he turns that upset, that first round upset, into a silver medal. Mm-hmm. Rafa comes into the tournament uncertain as to whether he's even going to play. Right up until the last minute, we don't know if Rafa is playing. And he ends up entering all three events. He goes on to make the semifinals or the medal round in singles, loses to Del Potro, and then loses the bronze medal match to Kay because he was so tired because he was playing doubles as well and winning. <laughs> Right. And then he goes on with Mark Lopez to win Olympic gold in doubles. And it just is the most earth-shattering experience for both of them. They are just overcome with emotion. One of the feel-good visuals of 2016, Rafa and Mark and mm. their love fest. And one of the other feel-good visuals came from the Olympics as well. Monica Puig of Puerto Rico wins the gold medal, beats Angelique Kerber... And, you know, that was a great, actually a great final four Mm -hmm. in the Olympics. There's Keys, Kerber, Puig, and Kvitova. Kvitova won the bronze medal. Poor Madison. Defeating Keys. I know. See, this is why I say four is a magic number for her. She came fourth place in the Olympics, and she reached the fourth round of every major tournament this year. So, if you're trying to build a career, you know, this might be a good step. This could be a, a good year showing that consistency, but... I expect her and hope that she breaks through big time in the next year or so. And this is how I'm I'm reminded of this moment on Twitter when Rafa was playing that final. And I had tweeted he had like maybe match point or something. And he didn't play very well and didn't play very well for a couple points. And I said, wow, Rafa's not really doing Spain any favors right now. And I got my ass dragged. Oh my God. By... You were roasted. Right? By people who I thought were friends on twitter (laughs) it was a real wake-up call i'm like wow i am not exempt you never know you just never know but let me tell you like my nadal card will not be snatched by any overzealous fans okay (laughs) it could have been worded differently but don't come for me right just don't unless i send for you you were so mad you were ready to just jump through the phone and just snatch some wigs all over the place i get very defensive i'm protective of you I'm like, girl, hold my earrings. I'm going to kick her ass. <laughs> now, I, just briefly, we said that Djokovic's draw was really bad. Again, talk about, look at who Venus and Serena lost to in doubles in the first round. Safajeva and Streetseva. Come on, like, that is a world-class doubles team. Safajeva has won a bunch of majors in doubles. Streetseva had these heroics in Fed Cup doubles at the end of the year. And she's also like, good enough for when Sanya Mirza and Martina Hingis break up for Sanya to be like, hey girl. Right? Just <laughs> tap her on the shoulder and say, let's win Cincinnati. <laughs> so for Venus and Serena, there was a lot of bad luck all around at the Olympics. But unfortunately, the Olympics were a bad sign for the rest of Serena's year because she didn't play much after that. Mm-hmm. Venus enters mixed doubles because hey she lost early in both right kirsten flipkins again don't look at me again when i see you on the practice court don't look at me look the other way and then she loses with with serena in doubles we get that so she decides to enter mixed and it's like well who's she gonna play with is it gonna be jack is it gonna be rajiv ram Mm -hmm. and so she plays rajiv ram and in that very first match that they play rajiv saves match points in the most ridiculous fashion at net it was (laughs) a reflex volley that you could only dream of 
and they go all the way to the final, come very close to winning gold. Very close. We watched that in the courtyard mm-hmm. at Cincinnati. They settle for silver. Venus medals again. She fi- she at least gets something good out mm. of Rio because I feel like at this point Venus is just playing for the Olympics and Grand Slams. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean at her age, like that's what's important. Mm-hmm. And here she is saying, "Yeah, maybe I'll play 2020. Who knows?" We cannot let this segment pass without talking about that press conference in Rio where the entire U.S. team is lined up on the oh podium. Oh, my God, yeah. And the women are in the center. So you have Venus, Serena, Madison, and Sloan, right? Mm-hmm. The four women of color right in the middle flanked by a sea of whiteness on the U.S. <laughs> team. And some journalists asked them, what did they ask them? Oh, oh this is to, this is to um, Venus, Serena, and, and Sloan. How does it feel to be on the tennis court and do you feel more pressure with all the Black Lives Matter stuff that's going on back home to be able to then translate that into success in the tennis court or mm-hmm. something like that? And they just all start laughing. Venus starts laughing. I've never seen Venus look so, quote unquote, unprofessional in that kind of <laughs> setting before. And she's, <laughs> they were like, Madison, do you want to be a part of this? Because hello, <laughs> Madison is of color, right. clearly. That didn't translate to the, the person who was asking the question. It was one of the most interesting moments of 2016 and we did a a whole segment on on that in a previous episode it was and it actually elicited a fascinating conversation among our friends while we were in cincinnati Mm -hmm. elsewhere santina decided to break up around the time of the olympics and it's worth kind of going through their many accolades because they were together for a very brief period and they won damn near everything they won 14 titles they had a 41-match win streak, which included three majors. Included Wimbledon 2015, U.S. Open, and then this year's Australian Open. They won five titles this year, which constituted a slump for them. And that was just up until the spring. Five right. titles. And so I have a little question for you. For me? Yeah. So the actually the record double streak is 44 match wins. Do you know who did that? I knew this at one point. Mm. I want to say it's Martina. It's a tough one. It's a tough one? It is. But no, I will give you a clue. It is in the 90s. I know it's in the 90s. And is Yana part of it? Yes. That's what I That's what I recall. Because I'm a Yana fan. Right. Novotna. Uh-huh. Is it... I want to say Sokova? Yes. And it happened in 1990. Mm-hmm. Because I know those two played together. And I think Sokova coached her a while afterward. Well done. Thank you. Bravo. Elsewhere on the men's side, Nick Kyrgios, who skipped the Olympic Games amidst the Kitty Chiller drama, he wins Atlanta. Get that money, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Beating, and I mean that in the non-pejorative boy sense right. of a right. male of color, just for the record. He beats three-time defending champion Isner in the final. Great. I have no complaints there. I mean, <laughs> positives all around here. Because John Isner skips the Olympics to be the face of Atlanta tennis. Right? Mm. <laughs> Collect that appearance fee. Well, you know what? Fuck John Isner. Because you want to be a Trumpian and this big patriot and you don't go to the Olympics. And you don't go to the Olympic Games. Mm. Just don't. You had that loss coming. Mm. Riley Pelka, who is a by extension friend of the podcast because right. of Michael Lewis. He may not know it, but he's a, a mutual friend. <laughs> and we saw him in Cincinnati. We both watched him in Cincinnati and that was that was fun. It was, yeah. 
I think he he won that match. He won a three-set first-round match against Chardy, I want to say. Chardy, yeah. He jumps 442 spots after making the Atlanta semifinal. Massive result. I mean, you don't do that every day. No, that's huge. <laughs> Which now leads us to Cincinnati. The body serve is on site in Cincinnati for the first time. I am press. The podcast is press. Totally out of body, new experience. I don't know if I've said this on previous podcasts, but I was so... A, nervous, and then B, my natural way to acclimate to new environments is to just be a fly in the wall and watch, mm-hmm. which I think is fairly wise. But you then miss out on a whole lot, and many opportunities pass you by if you're not ready to go right off the bat, right? I, I didn't have any counsel ahead of time, some counsel, as to what to expect, but you don't get the full effect until you're there. And the very first day, the, 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 the first full day you're there, you're doing these pre-tournament pressers, which are informal sit-down roundtables where the players just come in. You're like, what is going on? I'm sitting down at a big round conference table with the numbers one through eight ranked players in the world <laughs> on both sides of tennis. When Okay. When like, you- I'm, I'm going to share this little tidbit too, but like Dominic Ting comes in and I'm sitting there just totally distracted by his beauty. <laughs> like, how do you work? How do you work when these people are... I could literally, like, excuse me, and just like, oh, that's very nice hair you've got right there. <laughs> <laughs> but you keep it professional, right? Uh, but I do want to give a shout-out and a thank you to Courtney Nguyen because this year she's been the WTA insider, her first full year as being the WTA insider. And I had met her the previous year in Cincinnati, both her and Ben, as well as other quote-unquote tennis insiders, right? Mm. And in those first two days, she was very encouraging in terms of, I remember specifically her saying, you know, you know, you got to ask questions, you know, trust your questions, your your questions are good, always remember that. Encouraging me to, to put myself out there. And... That was very helpful because that then spurred me on to secure one-on-ones with Sanya Mirza and Svetlana Kuznetsova and made the the experience worthwhile for this podcast because you can hear those interviews now. The other thing I want to point out briefly about my time in Cincinnati is with that interview with Sanya Mirza, there was a question that I edited from that <laughs> there was <laughs> from that interview I, and I asked you I, I sought counsel from you. As to what I should do. Well, you you sent me a rough copy, and I listened to it. I remember I was on the streetcar, and it was at the very beginning of the interview, and I was like, oh, 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 uh, because she she got a little heated. She was ready to the shut thing, that shit down. The thing with Sonia Mirza is that she is such an engaging interview, mm-hmm. and from what I could tell from the interview, but she goes from zero to 60 in... Point two seconds. Yeah, and there was a moment in in her post doubles title winning press conference where she had just had enough of the Martina Hingis questions, <laughs> and she was like, "Listen, I think it's disrespectful to Barbara right here that mm. you keep asking these questions, and I just want to move forward and talk about the fact that we've had a very good week together." I'm like, "Girl, like that that just turned up real right. quick." Right. But in fairness to her, I asked a. I asked a good question in a really stupid way. <laughs> yeah, from the quest- my... Uh, yeah, the question was, you remember Martina and Sanya had released this joint statement after the breakup. 
saying that essentially there was nothing untoward, there was nothing salacious about it, this was just a professional decision. And this was something that Sanya had reiterated with me and in press up until this point, saying that sometimes you just go your separate ways, there's nothing, there's nothing to be seen there, right? And so my question was, do you think that, or well, the way I asked it was, do you think that the way the the need that you felt to come up with this statement was because you want to cut off the sexism in tennis that's rampant, right? Mm-hmm. And before I could even really finish the question, she was like, no, there's no sexism in tennis. This has nothing to do with that. Da, 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 da. It was like you had heard sexism in tennis and it was like this trigger to just shut yeah. that shit down, but right? She shut it down. But my, my point in asking that question was, was the wording of that statement and getting ahead of the story an effort to address ahead of time the people who are going to, by default, question the breakup as being, well, these two powerful, successful women can't get along. That there must have been Mm -hmm. some infighting, some catfighting, and whatever. Especially considering Martina's sort of tabloid history. Mm -hmm. Her epic fights with Anna Kornikova in the locker room, supposedly, if those really did happen. But you remember the very salacious reporting about those, like, I'm the queen, you're not, all that stuff. But that was an experience and a half, and interviewing Sanya Mirza was wonderful. Because as somebody who's new, A, the fact that she agreed to it, B, the fact that she was so engaging, and apart from that bit that was edited, there was still a lot of really good stuff that came from that interview, specific to her thoughts on feminism and what it means for her to be a feminist, right? Right. So we can we can move past that. Briefly talk about the winners in Cincinnati. Pliskova, Carolina Pliskova. That name keeps coming up in this recap, right? She faced Kerber in the final. Kerber was supposed to be crowned as the new number one, and this was her chance. And this was one of her chances. Yeah, she she, she missed the first one. Pliskova just. She, was, Assert, she, she was just asserted zon- herself in that She final. was zoning that week. There was no beating Pliskova that week. And remember, too, that Kerber was tired. I saw her all week in press, and she was like, I am tired. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> I had just come from Montreal, went to Rio. I'm back. Made it all the way through Rio. Made that final. Played for Golden. Mm-hmm. Win, then comes back to Cincinnati. Makes it all to the final again. You are going to be tired. There's no two ways about and it. And she plays a, an unforgiving style of tennis yes. as well. But remember, if you're a longtime listener, that A, Kerber was somebody we pegged to have a breakout year in 2016. And that certainly happened up to this point. Mm-hmm. And now the second person that we pegged, Pliskova, she's starting to come to the fore. And she's going to rear her ugly head like Miss Flipkins did <laughs> <laughs> when the US Open comes around. On the men's side, much like Kerber, Murray makes the final, just like he did at the Olympics, and he loses to Marin Cilic. Cilic, like Pliskova, just has a blitz of a week, plays really well, is tested most by Dimitrov in the semifinals. Dimitrov has a resurgent week. We start to see him turn his year around. And he's popular, too. Yes. And a lot of that probably has to do with his looks, but his game is aesthetically pleasing. And he's very charming. Mm -hmm. He's He's engaging. He's a credit to the ATP, which is why it's good to see him play well. The last bit from that week uh, of Cincinnati and following Cincinnati is that as of September 1, it's announced that there's an amendment to the anti-doping program, which makes provisional suspensions public with immediate effect. So in theory, 
And in practice, we shouldn't have a repeat of the Varvara Lepchenko situation, who was mysteriously absent for a little bit. And then we come to hear rumors that she's had a silent ban because of a meldonium suspension. Mm -hmm. And then she won't answer questions about the French Open. And then later on in the year, she sends out a tweet. It was like, well, yeah, sorry, guys. It did happen, but no, I, ju- I just had to follow the the rules and let it play out. And this is what happened. I'm, I did nothing wrong, and I'm glad that nothing was laid at my feet in terms of my own wrongdoing. And now we can move forward. But there's this lack of transparency with the system that doesn't help build faith with tennis viewers. Mm-hmm. Well, we should say that her ban was overturned. Because she was like, well, when I got the email, which I read, I stopped taking it. (laughs) Because there was this whole bit where it came to pass later on, after the whole Sharapova mess was, the suspension was about to be handed down, right? We we found out that Wada didn't even really know how long Meldonium stayed in the system, right? right? So if Sharapova hadn't, well, it wouldn't have applied to her because... She had already said that she was popping everything before Serena's <laughs> match. But if you were just taking it before the December 31st deadline, it's quite possible that you'd have been suspended Yes, at no fault of your own. And Lepchenko did test positive in January because she took it in December. Mm-hmm. And those things and were... And Sharapova su- was like, yeah, I took it in January. I took it in February. I took it last night. Sharapova's mishandling of that press conference <laughs> and the PR fuckering in March is one of the 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 low key most bizarre great crazy stories of 2016 because there's an argument that it was actually very successful as well, well. it was made at the time mm-hmm. and i don't think it was in retrospect but now now it's positioned her as a martyr saying i did the right thing mm. anyway we've talked enough about that she didn't play it all this year, so let's talk about someone else. Yeah, bottom line, yay for more transparency in mm-hmm. tennis. That brings us to the U.S. Open. Now, U.S. Open and after is kind of like the lost season for me is on the women's side because Serena was gone. She I played had, the U.S. Open. She did. And she made the semifinals. I had huge, huge hopes for her. I thought this was going to be another like 2013 or 2012 where she won Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. I really thought she was here but she was struggling with some injuries and i mean that just happens she's 35 she turned 35 in september this second half of the well not second half this last bit of the season we're gonna move through it more quickly than we have previous segments because we just did episodes on this we just covered this it should be fresh in your mind if you've been listening so there is there's a little bit of silver lining there's venus in the quarterfinals again another Second week in a major, round of 16 at the French, semis at the Wimbledon, quarters at the U.S. Open. That is a great performance for Venus at age 36. And again, playing what people are talking about as one of the matches of the year and losing See that quarterfinal against Pliskova, oh my god. This is the heartbreaker. Like Venus had just beaten her in Zhuhai the year before to win that final add-on tournament of the year get those 700 Mm -hmm. ranking points and that was a close match and so i expected a close match and i expected it to be gangbusters but why she had to lose in in venus's 20 plus year career she's played a lot of classics Mm -hmm. and 
the, I the, don't, what's I, the one that comes to mind most? Well, 2005, Williams defeats Davenport mm-hmm. in the Wimbledon final. I don't want people to remember her on the losing end of these classics. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that she's playing at such a high level at this age against Kvitova and Pliskova, but it breaks my heart that she lost Kvitova being that Wimbledon third-round match in 2014, yes. right? Mm-hmm. I like to think of that 20, 2005 Wimbledon final as retribution for that press conference after Beatgate in 1997. Ooh, ooh. Because Miss Lindsay Davenport did not handle that situation quite. I'm sure, I, I hope that in retrospect, if she goes back and watches that tape, she's like, damn, that just wasn't, that just wasn't very good. That's not on. She's gone to bat for the Williams sisters since. Like, mm-hmm. since she's retired. And she's an excellent commentator, our political differences aside. Maybe we should get into that in our next episode. The messy as fuck we segment? Yeah, because that was actually a very interesting time capsule. Make a note of it. I will. <laughs> U.S. Open. Angelique Kerber reminds everyone that she's here. And she is ready to be your women's number one. She earned it. All there's, she... there's no argument. All she needed was that... Steffi Andre gummy berry juice (laughs) (laughs) after Indian Wells and she was ready for the rest of the year I mean she was a little thirsty for the Graf love and she finally got it and the press was more thirsty it's no small feat to do what she did being in Steffi's shadow definitely because I wonder if Steffi know that did you ever know that you're (laughs) and Steffi's out here in Vegas saying like what's your name again (laughs) Uh, I used to play tennis. Like, I'm on the board of Andre's school. I'm doing these fundraisers. Like, people want me to think about, what? Tennis? I mean, like, it's September. I'm thinking about my Halloween costume. Right? (laughs) So, there's Plushkova again. She, I mean, now that I go through this, I realize what a hell of a summer and fall she put together. And why we thought so highly of her, right? Let's at least take some credit. You especially. I know you're trying to get the credit here. (laughs) It was it was all you who predicted this, but it really backfired on you because she pulled a Flipkins against Venus. Don't I know it? She beat Serena in the semifinals. I wasn't even home for that match. I was kind of watching it on my phone, just the score, and was just stuck, just tuned out. I was done, and reached the final and lost to Kerber and Kerber. <laughs> on the men's side, Stan wins the U.S. Open for his third Slam title. Massive result, beats Nole in the final. I was at work thinking, well, Nole won the first set and it's like, okay. And then I see Stan wins the second set and I'm like, this this just cannot be happening again. Again. How is this happening again? (laughs) This is not to be believed. And lo and behold, Stan wins the next three sets, wins the US Open. He draws even with Murray at three Grand Slam titles. Murray's going to be like, sorry, boo. I'm about to be number one. <laughs> <laughs> and sorry, boo, I've been to like 34 Grand Slam finals. Right. That, but then we also have Nole's cakewalk of a run to the final. He completed only two matches en route to the semifinal. That's crazy. Yeah. Withdrawals and walkovers all over the place. Mofis's bizarre, just bizarre play in the semifinal versus Novak. <laughs> I was so firmly entrenched on the Mofis bandwagon at this point because I'd seen him so much in Toronto 
I made note of his consistency from very early in the year. So this was a progression that I that I'd seen and been invested in for a very long time in 2016. And I thought, well, wow, like this could be his full on breakout moment. And then he goes down early in that match and just decides, well, I'm just going to lollipop this shit. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it worked for a while. So the commentators were savage, vicious. And I'm sitting there watching it like thinking, okay, well, uh, I mean, he's not giving up. It looks it's bizarre. And it's not something that you see in tennis very often. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But he's managing to win games. And if you listen or watch a single handful of press conferences from the year, pay attention to Serena and Novak's from Indian Wells and also Mofis's from the US Open. Mm. Those three in particular are just golden. There's so many nuggets. But the commentary was so venomous that I found myself rooting for Mofis. And and sticking up for him. Luca Pui matches his quarterfinal result from Wimbledon. He beats Rafa in the fourth round. One Martin Del Potro, he too makes the quarterfinals, losing to Vavrinka. Vavrinka avenges the Wimbledon loss. And there are all these emotional scenes again as the match is ending. <laughs> Del Potro is tearing up as he's preparing to return while Stan serves for the match. Del Potro is the most emotional man in tennis I've ever seen, and it's glorious. Mm-hmm. This tournament should have been Andy Murray's. I don't care. Nobody wants to say Murray had the momentum. He had a pretty easy draw. Not Nole kind of easy draw, but a pretty easy draw. And then he loses to Kane the quarterfinals after leading two sets to one. I thought that was a really big missed opportunity. And in some ways makes it even more surprising that he would go on to have such a tear mm-hmm. in the fall because that's the kind of loss that can really derail momentum. I mean, his his fall can almost be seen as a corrective, uh, you know, as a way to get past that U.S. Open loss and assert himself. His fall is in the season. Yes. Okay. Not, I mean, his autumn. Okay. <laughs> so we've covered pretty much everything that isn't fresh in your memory. So for the rest of the year, we're just going to do a rapid fire. You spit one out, I spit one out. Just get through it. Okay. We're going to freestyle rap. All right. What do you got first? Okay. Wozniacki. I have to admit that I was rough on her. You're so wrong. I was really rough. So wrong. And she goes ahead and reaches the semifinals of the U.S. Open. But it doesn't stop there. She wins her first title in a year and a half in Tokyo. She beats everybody's favorite for kind of best new artist, (laughs) Naomi Osaka. Not Millie Vanilli. That's not what this is going to be. They gave their Grammys back. (laughs) Naomi Osaka in the Tokyo final. What else? Sibokova continues to build this amazing year. She reaches the final in Wuhan. We already talked about Petra's absolutely savage run to the Wuhan title, beating Svitolina, Kerber, Kanta, Halep, Sibokova. And it looks even more impressive now that Sibokova has won the WTA finals. What do you got? Well, Mari, he starts right off the bat winning Beijing, the China Open. It's the 40th career title. He's only the 16th player in the Open era to do it. Before Beijing, he'd only won four titles on the year. 
And by the end of the year, just in the fall, he's made up five more titles to finish with nine. And that includes winning every event he's entered for the rest of the fall. (laughs) It's insane. Beijing, Shanghai, Vienna, Paris, and then London. Mm -hmm. Kyrgios beats Goffin to win the Japan Open. It's his third title of 2016. Really good result. You're doing well. Mm -hmm. However... Two days later, he shows up in Shanghai and has the meltdown for the ages. <laughs> I mean, it's early in the first set, and he's telling the umpire, "Just, just call it. There's no point." Mm-hmm. That, it was, yeah. it was un, it was crazy. It really made me think, and I, I spoke about this on a previous episode that maybe there is more to it than just immaturity, but maybe some, some psychological stuff at play. Well, or maybe at least he has to talk to somebody. Or some emotional troubles. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. we we know and we've talked about in this podcast that men don't engage and deal with their feelings as much as they should. And that can manifest itself negatively in many ways. Maybe this is one of them. Mm-hmm. Get a hold of your feelings. Being able to, to express them in productive ways is a good thing. And not just a woman-only kind of situation. Mm-hmm. I strongly believe that much of the world's ills can be solved by men being able to engage with their emotions and their feelings. Kyrgios was suspended, was told that he could have his suspension shortened to three weeks if he goes and sees, was it from eight weeks to three weeks? I think so, If he yeah. goes and sees a, a sports psychologist. Supposedly that's ha- that has happened, mm-hmm. and he's off playing IPTL right now. Not that IPTL couldn't have been played. Right. While because he was suspended. Uh, Sharapova can play exhibitions. She can do whatever she, she wants. wants. Yeah. Sanya Mirza celebrates 80 consecutive weeks as doubles number one. She reached number one after Charleston in 2015, and she just continues to bask in the number one ranking. One of the best moments of 2016 was Sanya Mirza dragging so many people who tried to come for her and say, like, girl, like, you're not number one. She's like, I clearly stated doubles. <laughs> and if you knew anything about tennis, you clearly should know that it's doubles right. I'm talking about. So do not come for my crown right now. And then the rest is history. We we very recently talked about Sibokova stunning everybody, winning the WTA finals. Kvitova continued a really excellent second half of the year winning the sort of second tier tournament the the story of the sec of the fall is that the people who played well played well throughout for the most part yeah Mari Kvedova Siblkova Del Potro continued playing well he won Stockholm his first ATP title in 33 months Pablo Karenia Busta he won his second title of the year in Moscow Nadal we we didn't talk about this, but Nadal opened his academy in Mallorca after he shut it down for the year. So mm-hmm. he was just going to rehab and get better. He then goes and opens his big academy. And who is on site? Best bud, Roger. <laughs> and they have some... Their, their bromance, as I'm very hesitant to call it that, but their relationship is is everything wonderful. Because they're so... They're, they're just awesome together off court. Not only have they had these battles on court unlike anybody in the history of tennis, right? That have been mm-hmm. so polar opposite. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people really denigrate the Nadal-Federer rivalry. And I'm a big, big fan mm-hmm. of their matches. They've they've done that on court and then they've also carried the flag for the ATP 
off the court as well. And they seem to enjoy each other's company and they appreciate each other's place in the annals of tennis history. Which is, it's a unique thing to have those two be who they are. Mm -hmm. Murray gets to number one after winning Paris. And then he keeps number one and ends the year number one when he wins the ATP Tour World Finals in London. And very importantly, beats Novak in the final. Because there are lots of people who said, fine, you're number one, you're winning all these things, but it doesn't matter until you beat Novak. And guess what? You come off of beating Milos again in the semifinals. <laughs> in a, the whipping boy. In a three and a half hour semifinal. And everybody, myself included, was like, well, there we go. There goes number one because... He's spent. Novak is not spent. And Andy has to be spent after winning so many matches... Not only in the year, but just in the last couple months. And Murray goes on to win fairly routinely, 6-3, Before we go, we have to catch you up on Davis Cup. Because the, I think that's the only big-time event that we haven't talked about yet. Did we talk about Fed Cup, the Fed Cup final? We well? did, We yeah. did, okay. So Davis Cup, it seems like Del Potro is an absolute monster when he's playing on behalf of Argentina. He bleeds <laughs> blue. We saw it in in the Olympics. We've seen it in Davis Cup multiple times this year. I mean, he is just... He's on another planet when he's playing for Argentina. This is one of the big, big stories of 2016. Delpo is the hero again. Mm -hmm. He has done so... He's done the most that nobody expected <laughs> in 2016. And in such a, a really shitty year with so many shitty things happening in tennis and off tennis, he's one of the few really positive, bright moments to emerge. He is. And going back and looking through all these results and making notes, I didn't really get the full picture as to just how much he'd done in 2016. So much so that his actual tour title is the least of it. Like we make fun of him that, oh, he's doing all these things when points and money don't don't matter, right? Mm -hmm. But he did win a tournament. He won Stockholm. But it's everything else that he's done. Mm -hmm. And I really have big hopes for him in 2016. But at the Davis Cup, fine. We're going to do a, a little bit of a recap here. Del Potro plays Cilic in the fourth match of the tie. Croatia is up 2-1 and two sets to love. Chilich over Del Potro in that mm -hmm. fourth match. Yeah, it, it really didn't, it didn't look good. It didn't look good. <laughs> no. And like Chilich did twice before in 2016, he loses the two-set-to-love lead to Del Potro, who comes back. And then in the fifth match, Del Bonis beats Karlovich, who's had a pretty good year himself as well. Mm -hmm. The old man. I would never have imagined Del Bonis being able to win that match in three sets, in straight sets. Yeah. And there you have it, Argentina finally, after all all these decades of futility in Davis Cup and all these near misses for Del Potro himself in previous years, finally have the Davis Cup. I was shocked that they have never won a Davis Cup. In in the age of Vilas, Nabandian, exactly, Coria, all these, they, I mean, they've had some great players that they have never won a Davis Cup. It seems like it was time. And so Del Potro fractures one of his fingers, <laughs> blocking back a Chilich serve, manages to win that match. And that wasn't even the deciding match of the tie. No. Like, 
The thing is, Delbanas has to go on and be Karlovich, which was a tall order in itself. Literally, a tall order. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> Personally, I was happy that we could end 2016 on a really feel-good note, because that wasn't always the case in 2016 tennis or life in general. Whenever looking back at tennis gets to be too much for you, just remember Delpo. Mm-hmm. Remember his 2016 because it was one for the ages. Remember Delpo and remember Venus and Serena going up to the Royal Box in the All England Tennis Club because that gives me life every time I see it. Remember Venus making the semifinals at Wimbledon? Mm -hmm. Never forget it. Not just remember it, but never forget it. (laughs) And remember that Svetlana Kuznetsova is in your year-end top 10 where she belongs. And I'd like to think that my interviewing her in Cincinnati has something to do with it. <laughs> when she told me that her tennis diva would be a cross between... No, actually not a cross, but she would be Rihanna. Mm-hmm. That's what she said. All right, work. Sanya Mirza said that she would be Celine Dion and Beyonce. Which? which is one hell of a mix. I mean, that would be unstoppable. <laughs> I think Celine would, would wish for that mix herself. <laughs> well, Celine, like, you just cannot not like Celine. No. That's the thing. Like, she's corny, but she, she's just wonderful. That brings us to the end of our, our official year-end wrap-up. I did want to drop in. Please, everyone listening, check out Jonathan's recap of the best tennis Twitter of 2016, because that takes a lot of damn work to compile, (laughs) and a lot of devotion. And it's really great. Anyone who uses Twitter knows it's not easy to find old tweets, even your own old tweets, but it is like a gold mine of tennis tweets from players, from commentators. Most, mostly players. I mean, right. I did have the benefit of just looking through my own files. That's what I drew from with the This Week in Tennis, right? Because mm. it's a feature of every edition. Don't don't minimize That's what I do when I'm sorry. Don't minimize the work you did. So check out sportscribe.ca. It gave me a lot of entertainment and I swear that he didn't ask me no, to do this I'm plug. I'm actually quite surprised by this. <laughs> <laughs> but really, check it out. This ends our part 2 recap of the year. And if you think that wow, this is a ambitious B too much, you are probably right. But guess what? We're coming back with a third part. Yeah. Whether you like it or not, we're not done. Because guess what? Most people aren't podcasting right now. Most of the tennis podcasters are on hiatus. So we have a captive audience. (laughs) If you need some tennis podcasting in your life, we are it. (laughs) (laughs) We're making up for lost time. And on our next episode, we're hoping to go out with a bang. Because we're going to turn all the way up. It may just be entitled Messy as Fuck. Mm-hmm. Because we're just going to go through all the messy shit that happened in 2016 and we deliberately left a lot of it off of this, off of the last two episodes because we're saving that. We did. Um, I think like the theme of this year would be messy and petty. Mm-hmm. Two five letter words that end in Y. That have E as a second letter. Exactly. And two of the same letters as the third and fourth. Yes, yeah, so just fill in your consonants. And they come after each other, S and T. Okay, thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Yes. <laughs> We're going to do the Grand Slam rankings, the very revolutionary Grand Slam rankings (laughs) Mm -hmm. that I spent months concocting. Lots of formulas. (laughs) Wow. 
Wow. It's is there a, a proprietary algorithm? It's the simplest shit you'll ever <laughs> see. <laughs> and we are also going to be giving a bunch, a whole bunch of shout outs on the next episode. There's going to be a whole segment dedicated to our gratitude to mm-hmm. so many of you because the the love that you've shown us and the feedback and the your own gratitude for what we do it's it's heartwarming and we would not still be doing this without that no because that's or that's the money in our bank mm-hmm. really cuz we don't get money <laughs> except for the sponsorship that we did get from Racket Mag and Caitlin Thompson mm-hmm. mid year some point Shout out to Rocket Mag. We are quite happy to have been a part of that this year. They're doing big things. So that's that. Part two is in the bag. And I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at SportsscribeCA. And I'm James. I'm at ElliotJMR. The podcast is The Body Serve at The Body Serve on Twitter. Give us a review on iTunes. Let everybody know how wonderful we are. Right? We're wonderful. No? I don't know. I mean, let them decide. <laughs> Well, how wonderful we are as a podcasting duo. I I wouldn't let them lie for you as a... (laughs) Till next time. (laughs)